confession with most of you that Thanksgiving is actually my favorite holiday. And I felt like a couple people gave me like, yeah, they agreed, but maybe not today. But this was, <laughs> this was just one of those moments where I feel like for Christmas, the reason was because Christmas can feel a little bit expensive emotionally. Like, I get really amped, and then it's done, and the day after Christmas, I'm always really sad. And actually, the Lord had my second son, my, my only son, but my second kid, be born on, on the day after Christmas. So I felt like the Lord's like, he's going to dispel your Christmas gloom. But I still strictly abide by this rule that Christmas decor, it comes down December 26th. Anyone else? Like, it's out of the house. Like, I don't want to see it again. I know, it's intense. I take it intensely. I have to guard my heart. But a couple years ago, we had this big, real tree. And um, Eden and I go to Target. That's, we have four kids. I take my oldest to Target the day after Christmas because that's when they slash the prices on all their Christmas decor. And so anyway, don't go, though, because I don't want anyone to know about it. But I go, and I take Eden. And we'd gone, and we pull up to our house to come back. And I see Chad and Kate as the garage is, like, closing and Kate is being stripped out of his very wet clothes. And it was a cold day, and there's a police car in front of our house, like slowly pulling past our house. And so I'm a little bit like, what's going on? And I, I come into the house, and Chad's like, are my eyebrows still here? And I was like, what are you talking about? And he had taken our real Christmas tree and lit it on fire in our very shaded, very small pit, like outside. And I guess it went up in something like a minute in huge flame. So if you wanted a science experiment, I don't actually know if it's legal, but we did it. <laughs> We have a real tree this year, so you know that's going to be happening on December 26th, if any of y'all want to experience it. Um, so what I'm always looking for in Christmas, and in the Christmas narrative itself, is something that can last me. Like, I'm looking for longevity. I'm looking for something that I want to contemplate with people for the whole year, not just something that I get excited about for 25 days. And I feel like a lot of the Christmas stories, we kind of relegate just to Christmas time. You know what I mean? And so last week... As all of us were just talking as a team, like, how do we create an Advent series where we're anticipating the birth of Jesus, but how do we do it in a way that we're actually together as people in a room contemplating who Jesus is? It's not really giving answers as much as it is, like, how has God revealed himself in these stories, and how is it worthwhile for us to collectively think about it? And so last week, Heather got up here, and we looked at this Chapter in Luke chapter 2 is like so, so familiar probably where the angels appeared to the shepherds who were keeping watch of their flocks by night. There's songs about it, so much stuff. And we just looked at why shepherds? We just asked a simple question while we're reading the Bible. And I find that that is like the best way for me to read the Bible is to ask questions. Because I've heard it said that the Bible is really the only book where the author or the inspiration behind it is with me. And so I can ask a question and I can actually anticipate an answer. So we asked, why shepherds? Why does it matter that they were shepherds? And then we were like, wait, John 10, I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. Psalm 23, the Lord is my So you see what I'm saying? So this is what we're trying to do as a body. It's not really even to study the Christmas stories because hopefully on our own throughout this season, we're doing that like with our kids or our family or we're revisiting them. I just want to give us tools to open up a story and ask a simple question and get an answer. So we're going to zoom out from the narrative of the nativity scene. And we're actually gonna go a little bit before today. We're gonna look at Luke chapter one. So you can open up to Luke chapter one. And we are going to read verses five through 25. And this is a precursor story to Jesus because it's actually the story of how John the Baptist is born and who his parents are, what their roles are. 
And John the Baptist is the forerunner of Jesus. He's the one that Isaiah prophesied about and said, I'm preparing the way. I'm making straight paths for the Lord to come. So he's like the precursor to Jesus. And his birth is so significant that Luke thought it deserved like a full chapter. So that's where we're going to go. He's also the first person that recognizes who Jesus is. And he recognizes him while he's still in utero. Isn't that fascinating? It says that Elizabeth feels the baby leap for joy within her. We're not going to get into that today. But that's like, that should make us want to spend time with God. That's like so cool. But this baby senses the presence of another baby who's also in utero. And it's like, it's the Messiah. And then Elizabeth knows. And Mary, we get Mary's longest monologue from it. So, but that's not even today. So, okay. Let's start in verse 5. It says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest. Everyone say priest. Named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord, but they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now, it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God and the appointed order of his division, His division was on duty. We'll just do this one. According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Everyone say burn incense. That's fun. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, who was another prophet in the Old Testament, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord, a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years, which is so rude. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. Until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe, no, no, I, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to bring you this good news. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, which is really a talent, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So (laughs) that is a big chunk of verses. And there is so much there. And we are not really going to get into it today, which makes me sad. But we're basically just going to ask a simple question and then go somewhere else. So my hope is that when we come on Sundays, this is like team huddle. This is the time when we get kind of the play call for the week. What do we think about this week? How do we spend time with God this week? What questions are we going to ask this week? This is a great chapter for all of us to revisit. Not so that, like, we're, like, weird and we all think the same way, but kind of. Like, what if we all just started talking about this stuff and thinking about this stuff, and we're all on the same page collectively? You know, I think there's power to that. In Deuteronomy 11, it says they talk about 
speaking these words that I've commanded you when you're at home, the first thing when you get up in the morning, when you're walking along the way. So that's my hope, is that Luke, Luke 1, we're going to go back to, okay? So everyone, we're going to go back, right? This week, you're going to go back. You're going to read it? But right now, I just want to ask this simple question. What was Zacharias's role? What was he? He was a priest. So I'm like, why? Why, why does it matter that John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, would be a priest? I'm like, what can we learn from that? And then I just started thinking, like, oh, my goodness, Jesus is called our high priest. Now, this is a subject I have not looked into, at least before this. I, I knew it, but I didn't know it. Do you know what I mean? I feel like right now the way that we relate to God in Christian churches, we've lost a lot of the contemplative stuff. We've lost a lot of the, the um, orders of things. But I think sometimes I can, in my arrogance, think, well, whatever I'm interested in is basically what God's interested in. And that's what he wants to talk about. But have you ever, like, the more you spend time with God, the more you're like, wow, he has things he wants to say. Yeah. And sometimes they're, like, out of the blue and out of left field. And, and it's not because it's not irrelevant. It's just irrelevant in my micro, tiny Karis world. Do you know what I mean? Do you all ever feel that way? So I feel like he wants to today bring this in front of all of us, that Jesus is our high priest. And he doesn't just want it to be this ethereal thing and a couple words, but I think there's enough in the scripture and enough in who Jesus is that he wants us to spend time with it and really mine the gold from this and ask questions like, why does it matter that I have a high priest? Why do I need a high priest? So the first thing I think it's important for us to define is what does a high priest do? What does a high priest do or what does a priest do? Now, in the Old Testament, there's a crazy story how this group, this people group, the Levites, were actually chosen to be the people of God, to be the priests of God. They were actually set apart just to minister to God. And it's a really gory, violent story, and you can go back and read it if you want to, this week even. But what happens is basically God elects one of the 12 tribes of Israel to strictly be there to minister to him in a temple that he set up. And this temple was where he would come. It was a tabernacle at the time, later becomes the temple. Y'all okay going here with me right now? Okay, so there's a couple different parts to this temple or tabernacle. There's the outer place where all of us can be, and then there's a holy place where only priests, only Levites are allowed to go. And not only Levites, but ones who had pure birth. They couldn't have like a little bit of another like Simeon tribe in there because you're kicked out then. You had to be purely a Levite. And then the Holy of Holies was this place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And the Ark of the Covenant is a place where God's presence would manifest and rest. And it was a holy, holy, holy place. And so when the high priest, only one man, one time a year, could go into the most holy place. And he would offer a sacrifice on the Day of Atonement for the sins of all the people of Israel. Does that make sense? So what does a priest do? Priests were mediating between God and the rest of mankind. They stood in the gap, and they, they, they sacrificed a bunch of different animals for people's daily sins. They offered incense. They took care of these candlesticks, these important lampstands that were in the tabernacle. And they basically stood on behalf of the people and interceded for the people. Doesn't that already sound like we need a high priest? Yeah. Don't, you, don't you think? Um, so that's what a high priest did or what a priest did. Now, why do we need a high priest? I think for me, a little bit in my generation maybe, we have become so grace-saturated where, like, I just feel a little bit entitled to everything in life. You know, I was just thinking about, like, Amazon Prime. Like, I'm a little frustrated when it's not one-day shipping. Do you feel the same way? Like, well, I just don't know if it's worth the two-day wait to order this now. But I feel like we're just, like, stepping a little bit into entitlement. And most of it is great. Like, 
we are people, we have rights, God has given us identity, but then there's this like slippery side of it on the other side where I just begin to feel entitled. So I, I have noticed as I was looking at the idea even of a high priest and of this priestly system, I don't like the distance it puts, but I also like, I have lost touch with that this business was frankly a very bloody business. These priests would offer daily sacrifices and they would take actual animals and have to kill them. And that's like bloody. But I feel like what the Israelites saw every day was the cost of sin. It stayed in front of them. Like there's a lot of blood. It's really like something has to die. We raise our Passover lamb. We bring it in our house. We take care of it. And then we kill it. And it's showing even our children, like stuff I would hide from my kids. They saw. But I think in that there was the gift of realizing the cost of my sin. You know, in Romans 6, 23, it says that the wages of sin is death. And I get so distanced from that. I don't know about y'all, but I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, I grew up in the church. I feel entitled to the fact that something had to die, but it was a long time ago, or I've lost touch, or I can kind of, like, make the crucifixion pretty instead of realizing what death is. You know, this past year, we walked with my son, who was diagnosed with stage 4 um, Wilms tumor, which is a type of cancer, and we just began to have really hard conversations, and I, it was the, that moment, which I'm sure many of you in this room have experienced with people you love who have died, where you're realizing one life is someone's world. You know, you can read on the news, like, thousands died, and that's easy to get distance from, but when it's the one person you love, it is so real that one person died. And so I think, I think the Lord wants to put this in front of us, not as condemnation, like, we need to feel like sinners, but to have that, that gratefulness, that gratitude of my sin cost blood, like someone had to die. And Jesus died. As our high priest, he did something no other high priest could actually do. I told you that they would go into the most holy place one time a year, this high priest, and he would offer a sacrifice for the sins of the people. But the offering that he had wasn't himself. Jesus was the only one who could get on the actual altar. Not only is our high priest, but Revelation 5 says that in standing in the middle of heaven is this lamb that looks as though it's been slain. And he gets on the altar. And, and right now, if we, I just feel like the Lord wants us to like look into heaven based on clues in the Bible. And there's so much we're going to miss and not see. But he's okay with that. But I feel like part of it, he just wants us to see Jesus is still the lamb that's been slain. You know, like he is our high king and he's conquering but he still looks as though he's been slain and that he costs something. So that's how our high priest, the first thing that our high priest does is he covers our sins. In Hebrews 9, verse 24, it says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Amen. Isn't that amazing? Like he did what no other high priest could do. And that's why we don't have a priesthood anymore. Because we have the high priest who did what, what no one else could do. After this... We don't have to offer that sacrifice because it's been made. And I also am just going to confess that sometimes growing up with the Christian vernacular, hearing, at least for me, my sins were forgiven, 
I can feel very distanced from God in my temptation. Do you know what I mean? Like, I know my sins are forgiven, but the daily charisms that stink, I have a hard time inviting God into. And another reason we need a high priest and where I think the Lord wants us to need a high priest in is in our temptation, in our moments of temptation. Did you know being tempted is not a sin? Isn't that kind of good news? I don't know if that's good news for y'all, but it's good news for me that when I'm tempted to scream my head off at my kids, I don't have to go there yet. I can be tempted and not sin. So I want us to look at basically, guys, the book of Hebrews, if you want to do a deeper study this week, is basically all about the priesthood of Jesus. But we're going to look at two verses here to back up the idea of overcoming temptation. In Hebrews 2, verses 16 through 18, it says, For assuredly, he, meaning Jesus, does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. That's us. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted, it's not fascinating, and that which he suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. This means that when you are face to face with temptation, let's say something comes on the screen of your TV and you don't want to see it, and it replays three days later, and you don't want to think about it, but it's there, and you're tempted, that you can actually cry out to your high priest. Isn't that fascinating? The moments that we feel so ashamed of what we're doing and how our, our wants are wanting something that we don't want to want, we have a high priest who can step in and be like, I'm here to help you. I can sympathize with that because I actually remember feeling that way. Isn't that fascinating that he was tempted? I don't know why that blows my mind. I don't know about y'all. Okay. Hebrews 4, verses 15 through 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Isn't that awesome? I love how I was reading Pope... Pope Francis's book, it's called The Name of God is Mercy, but he was talking about how sin is not just a wound, or sin is not just a stain, it is a wound, and it needs to be treated, and the place where I encounter the mercy of Jesus is my sin. Like, in our temptation to sin, we encounter the mercy of Jesus. Such good news. Okay, so the next thing, the next reason why we really need a high priest is because we need someone to pray for us. Now, this past year, I told you, we walked our son through a really hard journey, and I really needed a lot of people praying. And I could actually sense when a lot of people were praying. I told you guys this a couple weeks ago, but at week 18, it was the halfway mark of our chemo, we started to make these videos and do, like, prayer and fasting, because basically we'd realize when people pray, stuff happens, and when we don't put it out in front of people and they stop praying, we feel different. Stuff feels different. So we started to recruit people to pray for us. But what I'm so encouraged by is that in this story, Zechariah, so let's remember back to chapter 1, here we reference it, he's in the temple, and what was he doing? Do y'all remember? He was offering incense. He was offering incense. And then in verse 10, it says that the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of incense. There's something about incense in the temple of God or in the tabernacle that actually is also tied into prayer. Now, 
in Revelation 5, there's a really cool picture of heaven, if we can go there together. Remember, I said this is also where the lamb looks as though he's been slain. There are also angels, and they're holding bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Remember how Romans 8 says that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, because we don't even know what to pray. But he helps us pray. So if we can, like, try to get this mental picture of what's happening, we're praying, and the Holy Spirit is hearing what we're praying. Maybe I'm praying, God, I just need more money to make my bills. And the Holy Spirit's like, like, I know that you think you need more money, but what you really need is peace now when you don't have money, so that when you do get money and then you decide something else is what you need, you know how to access peace. Do you know what I'm saying? So I'm not, he's not going to solve, I'm, I'm trying to be God, I don't know what, right? Give me grace, okay? So I'm trying to point this picture, but let's say I'm asking for money. He's like, they really don't need money. They need peace before they get money. And then we'll give them the money, but let's give them peace first. And then Jesus is standing at the right hand of the throne of God, and he's interceding for us. So let's look at this verse. Hebrews 7, verse 23 to 25 says, The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. Basically mean they died. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore... He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, the word intercession means to entreat someone else's behavior, uh, favor on behalf of someone else. So, Jesus is saying, we love this person, don't we, Father? And the Father's like, we do love this person. And Jesus is like, we're going to help this person, aren't we, Father? And the Father's like, we're going to help this person. Now, here's another interesting picture that we can throw into our heaven scene in Revelation 12. It says, this is where the, the throwing down of Satan happens, and it says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Okay, so if we're trying to picture heaven, we have the Holy Spirit. He's with us. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're with me. You're not far away. He's hearing our prayers, and he's helping us pray. He's interceding for us. Then in heaven, we have the enemy, who I'm assuming, if we're thinking that the heavenly tabernacle looks like the earthly tabernacle. Y'all following me? Which I think it does, because God honors his systems, because it wasn't our system. It was his. He told Moses what to do. So Satan's on the outside of, the, of everything. He can't get into the tabernacle, but he's standing there, and he's hurling insults about us. He's accusing us. He's calling out the things that maybe you hear in your head every day. They're worthless. They're just going to fall again. Like, they're prone to wander. They're prone to sin. They're prone to... He's throwing out whatever it is that you hear. Insert it here. The accuser is accusing us. But then we have Jesus, and he's standing in the gap, and he's living to intercede for us. And he's praying who we are now because his blood covers us. Isn't that fascinating? I need that. I need a high priest who prays for me. And don't you want to hear what he's praying? Like, the next time the accuser comes... With an accusation, I think this is a great question to ask. Like, Jesus, if I were to hear what you're praying to the Father for me, what would you pray? If you want clues for how Jesus prays, let's look at John 17. We're not going to today, but this week you could do that. Look at John 17. It's his prayer in the garden. He's praying for his disciples. These are the kind of things he prays. He's showing us so that we have confidence to enter the holy place again. Now, we see on all these things, he's a much better high priest than all the other priests, right? No one else could get on the altar. No one else could really offer that incense, that prayer, with the same heart that Jesus does. No one else could help in temptation. 
And I was telling Eden, Eden is eight, she's our daughter, <clears throat> yesterday about this sermon. And I was just talking about how, so we have this setup of the temple, right? We know there's the outer place where all the normal people are. There's the inner place where the, the, only the priest could go, the most holy place. There's a separation between by this veil. And this veil, they think, was 30 feet high. I'm, like, really bad at, like, imagining, but that's high. 30 feet long and 18 inches thick. That's a thick veil. And it separated the holy place from the most holy place. So Zachariah, even though he's great and he loves God and he's the father of John the Baptist, had no access to the most holy place. This guy in Luke 1 we're looking at, he had no access there. And he couldn't give access to anyone else. There was a veil that separated. So I'm telling Eden this, and she's like, Mom, the veil tore. I was like, Eden, that is the crux of the message tomorrow. And you just said it right there. The veil tore. There was this veil separating us. And I want us to look at Matthew chapter 28. It's talking about the crucifixion. We've made it through everything painful. And this is the last part. Oh, sorry. Matthew 27, verses 50 through 51. It says, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. And then it talks about dead people coming out of their graves. It's crazy. But let's just hang out here that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now listen, to Jews, they knew what this meant. The people that were probably being the priests that day who were on call, because there were so many priests, they actually think that Zechariah only got to do this one time in his life. That's how many people, how many priests there were, okay? So the ones who were on call that day, they see this thing tear. What do you think their thought was? The most holy place is exposed. And they're like, they know history. People died for this. People died for treading where they weren't. To, in fact, their outfits, they had bells tied around the skirt of their outfit so that when the bells stopped for too long, they'd pull them out dead because they were dead. They'd had unconfessed sin or something. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. And yet Jesus, when he died, the veil tears. So let's look at what Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 21. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Okay, so he's given us access into the Holy of Holies. We have access. So this week, when you spend time with God and you feel his presence, it's because you've walked through the curtain of his flesh. Isn't that mind-blowing? We've walked through the curtain of Jesus' flesh into the most holy place. He's won us access, and it wasn't easy. It wasn't a low cost. It cost his life. The second part of this verse is fascinating. Full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. If you look back in Exodus where he's giving rules about priests, this is actually how you were consecrated to become a priest. So Jesus not only gives us access into the holy place, he makes us priests along with him. You know, I think Peter got this because he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. We become priests. In Revelation, it's full of describing the people of God, and he calls them priests of our God. Our job now, what did I say in the beginning, though? What, what do priests do? 
They stand in the gap. They mediate between God and the people. So what are we? When we step into the family of God, we step into priesthood. And now our job is to stand in the gap for people who don't know him and bring them into the priesthood. Isn't that amazing? All right, we're going to have a little response time. Um, I want the team to come up. But this is there are a couple of things I want us to do, if y'all don't mind standing up. The first thing is just allowing the Lord to paint a picture of the heavenly place. Maybe you need to just hang out in this picture because this is not something I do regularly. I don't know about y'all. But it might be worthwhile for us to contemplate together what we've just seen that heaven looks like. We see that there's an accuser. Don't get too caught up on him because he's going to be thrown down anyway. But there's also Jesus right next to the throne of majesty who went through the heavens. He's able to save us to the uttermost, and he's helping us. So I want you to close your eyes. I want you to picture that holy place. Now, some of you in this room might not have actually stepped into the priesthood yet. You haven't actually passed through the curtain that is the flesh of God, that is the flesh of Jesus. And so I want to give an invitation. If you have never realized that Jesus died, not just for those other people, but that there was a real man named Jesus and he died for you and you want access to him just on your own right now, you can open up your heart. You can pray however you want to pray and talk to God because he hears you and the Holy Spirit is helping you. Father, we are so thankful that in your wisdom, you knew what we didn't. We didn't even know we needed a high priest. We didn't even know it was possible for the veil to be torn. God, I thank you that just because we didn't know it didn't mean you didn't want to do it. That from the beginning of time, even in creating the original priest, it was you reaching out saying, I want friendship with my people. I want to know them. I want them to be intimate with them, with, with me. I want them to, to have access to me all the time. That's why incense went up morning and evening. It was all the time access. We thank you for that, God. And we ask for more for this week as we go out, that this wouldn't just be a message. Father, this wouldn't just be a good thought for Sunday. But that together we would let this fill the atmospheres of our minds and our homes. We thank you, Jesus, that you stand in heaven right now. That you look as a lamb as though it has been slain. And you cover us. We thank you that you're praying for us. And God, I silence. I ask for the voice of the accuser to be drowned out this week as we ask, Jesus, what are you praying for me? How are you praying for me? Because I'm going to dwell on that. We listen for you, Jesus. And we thank you that you really are the better thing. You are the better priest. That you've made us priests. Father, for those that we know that don't know you, we just bring them before you right now in our minds. For those we know that need you as their hope, that need you as their priest, we stand as priests before you. And we say, oh God, would you meet with them today? Thank you, God.